We do. We come here this morning. We want more of you, Lord. We, we, we don't want religion. We don't want tradition. We want more of your power, more of your spirit, Lord. Move through our lives, Lord. Blow through our hearts by your spirit, God. Give us an extra measure, Lord. Father, help us to see this morning the great value in following Jesus. The, the awesome, magnificent, powerful, eternal Son of God. Let that grip our hearts this morning as we worship you and we study your word. Capture our hearts by the power of your spirit. And church, if you agree with that prayer, I want you to give a loud, hearty amen. Amen? Amen. You may have a seat. Praise the Lord. It's wonderful to see you guys. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Verses, and we're looking at verses 13 through 23. And this is such an amazing passage. And right now, the first thing you're thinking, oh, he's teaching on Christmas. Get that thought out of your mind. Because I'm not teaching on Christmas. We're looking at the deep, rich theology and the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ here in his early uh, ministry of his life when he's less than two years old. A lot takes place in this passage. So let's, let's take a look at it together. Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 22, excuse me, 23, I'll be in this morning. It says in verse 13, now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and went and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then... What had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when, they had, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the, place of, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. Thus was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. God, we are so thankful, God, that we get to hear your voice through the pages of Scripture. So, Lord, now as we study it, help us to read it, understand it, and bring application to our life today. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, we've been 
we began this study in the Gospel of Matthew. We remember the differences between the four Gospels. The Gospel of John was written to the whole world. Luke's Gospel was written to the Greeks. Mark's Gospel was written to Rome. And Matthew's Gospel is written to who? The Jews. We're going to see this as we study the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse. You're going to see it in every chapter. Matthew constantly refers back to Old Testament prophecy. And that's very important because the very last verse in Matthew chapter 2, it says, He shall be called a Nazarene. I got two pages on that one verse because there's so much there that, that once you understand Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience in the first century, it just it brings it all to life. So it's going to be an amazing study this morning. So y'all ready to dig in? Let's do it. So the title of my message is Jesus Prophesied, Protected, and Rejected. I'm going to be jumping back and forth between these three subjects because that's the theme of this passage that we're looking at this morning. And the first portion in verse 13, actually verse 13 and 14, we're looking at Jesus, baby Jesus, protected. Let's take a look at it. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. This is interesting. I find this very interesting when you understand the historical context of the first century. Jesus came into a very hostile world. It was not peaceful. It was not peaceful and bliss. It was sinister, and it was dark. Israel was under the tyranny of Roman rule. Jesus' entry into the world was not met with parades, celebrations, or even a welcome party. He was met with an evil threat for his death. From the very, very beginning at his birth, they wanted to, he, Jesus, he was, his death was wanted by those in authority. Uh, but God always has a faithful remnant in the earth that are committed to him. He, back then and even today, there's always been a body of believers sustained by the Holy Spirit that are faithful to God. And in this case and in this text and in this passage, it's Joseph and Mary. So God commands Joseph through a dream and the angel of the Lord to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. Let's look at Joseph's obedience. Look at verse 14. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. The thing that I want to point out to you in verse 14, the thing I want you to take note of, is Joseph's obedience. And how, would, how does this verse describe Joseph's obedience? I, I, I present to you, it suggests a faithful and immediate obedience to God. It was faithful, meaning Joseph did exactly what God had told him to do. It says there, uh, Joseph got up and took the child and his mother. And I also want you to see in this verse that his obedience was immediate. It was immediate. There was no delay or there was no hesitation. It says in verse 14, while it was still night, Joseph wouldn't even wait for daybreak. He wouldn't even say, oh, honey, let's wait till the sun comes up so we can see our path. 
He says, the Lord has spoken and we must go now. That was Joseph and Mary's obedience to God. Now, question for you this morning. How would you describe your obedience? As I am studying this passage this week, you know what I'm doing? I'm asking you the questions that I ask myself as I'm studying the passage throughout the week. You know, and I have to ask myself, David, how would you describe your obedience to God? I had to ponder that thought all week. Do I obey the Lord? Do I listen to his voice? Do I follow his word? How would I describe my obedience? So I'm just turning around and asking you guys what the Holy Spirit was asking me. How would you describe your obedience? Number one, are you faithful? Are you faithful in obedience to the word? That's, an ex- that's, a, self- that's a question of self-examination that each person has to be honest in their heart before the Lord. Number two, do you follow through with what the Spirit places on your heart? You know, I believe the Holy Spirit still speaks today. He still places ministries and callings and things to do on the hearts of his children. And when the Holy Spirit lays something on your heart to do, and he gives you a burning passion, do you follow through? Do you follow through? I look back over my life, there's so many times where I've just explained it away, or not yet, or Lord, give me a confirmation, or Lord, let me pray about it, when I knew in my heart of hearts that the God had called me to that ministry. And so do we follow through on what the Spirit places in our hearts? Also, talking about his, his he, he, he did it while it was still night. Is your obedience immediate, or, is your, or do you delay? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Obedience is where the rubber meets the road in Christianity and serving Christ. Your, here you go. You ready for this? I'm, I'm just, this might be knocking some of you guys over and beating, banging you around, but welcome to the club. It, it beat and banged me around all week as I was meditating on these thoughts. But your commitment to Christ can be measured by your obedience. It's that simple. You know, in the American world today, we think our, our, our belief is just about this mental assent to truth, which there is a mental assent to truth, and there is a heart yielding to truth. But at the same time, real faith is measured by, Lord, I believe you, I trust you, and I want to obey you. I want to obey you. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. As I was meditating on this passage this week, the thing that kept coming to my heart was, was God help me to be an obedient, faithful servant to your word. As, the Holy, as I study the scriptures and the Holy Spirit brings it to life and he places ministries and callings and things I need to do in my life, in my walk with him and in my ministry, Lord, help me to obey. Help me to obey. I hope that's your heart's cry too. Because that's the essence of Christianity, is obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Joseph's faithfulness and obedience, what does God do in these verses? He protects. He protects baby Jesus. So God is protecting. That that word protection from the the message of the title, Jesus is protected. Now let's look at prophecy. He's going to reference three prophecies in this passage. Verse 15, this is good, family. This, this, is, this is theology 101, man. This is what I'm fixing to explain to you now. Look at verse 15. It says, He remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, just a surface reading of verse 15, you'd say, oh yeah, out of Egypt I called my son. Yeah, that's easy to understand. That's, uh, God calls his son out of Egypt. But let's go back and look at the reference to this passage. The reference to this passage is Hosea 11.1. 1. And this is the verse that Matthew is speaking to his Jewish audience and he's referring back to. Hosea 11.1, 1. look at it closely, family. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Question for you, look at the verse. Who is the him in Hosea 11.1? 1? Israel. So back in Hosea, he's talking about Israel, but here in Matthew, he's talking about Jesus, okay? So this, this, this verse is talking about Israel. This is what we call a typological prophecy. A, 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 a typological prophecy is when an event in the Old Testament parallels with or points to Jesus. Uh, so just so Hosea 11.1 1 and Matthew verse 15, just as God called Israel out of Egypt, so he does the exact same with his son. We call this typological prophecy or, or typology. The most, what's the, the most famous typology in all the Old Testament is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. The Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. And on the eve of their exodus out of Egypt, God instructed each family to sacrifice a male lamb without spot or blemish. And they were to apply the blood on the doorpost of their home. When, then, when the destroyer came through that night to bring the final judgment on Egypt that would force Pharaoh to let Israel go, the destroyer would pass over the homes of the Israelites with the blood over their doorpost. The blood of the lamb in the Old Testament in Exodus protected the Israelites from God's judgment that was coming upon um, Egypt and coming upon Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? He wouldn't let the Israelites go. And God says, man, one way or another, you're going to learn the hard way. You're going to let my people go. But before that judgment could sweep across Egypt, the firstborn, he had to protect his children. And his children were protected from the destroyer by the blood that was applied. Now, with that in mind, listen to these New Testament verses. John 1, 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, there it is, the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Just like the ancient Israelites in Egypt, they had, a lamb had to be sacrificed, so Christ had to be sacrificed for our sins. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our, what? Our Passover has been sacrificed. What the Passover lamb was to Israel down in Egypt, Jesus is to you and me. He keeps us from the judgment of God because he took the judgment of God upon himself at the cross. Okay? Another example of a, typolo of a typology 
in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites were in rebellion. They were blaspheming God's name and speaking against Moses. God sent fiery serpents among them, and if anyone was bitten, they died. Finally, they humbled themselves, and they asked Moses to ask God to remove the judgment of these fiery serpents. God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and place it up on a staff. And every Israelite that was bitten, this is in Numbers 21, if you want to go back and read it this afternoon, if they would look up to the bronze serpent on the pole, they would live. Okay, now, pause right there for a second. We all know John 3, 16, okay? For God so loved the world, he gives one begotten son. We all know that verse. Every Christian, the whole world has that verse memorized. But do you know what the two verses are before it? John chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. Listen to John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, excuse me. And then it leads into the most famous verse in the Bible. Jesus told Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, referring back to Numbers 21, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Back there in Numbers 21, the serpent on the pole lifted up high. The people look up to it. They live. It was a typology. It was a typological prophecy in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. I could do this with almost every, not almost, I could do this with every single Old Testament book. I could pull the pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ out. Why? Because the entire Old Testament is one big typology pointing to Jesus. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, the Passover lamb. In Daniel, the stranger in the fire. In Psalm, he is our morning song. In the Song of Solomon, he is the lover's dream. In Hosea, he's the one that is forever faithful. It all points to Jesus. The entire believing body of Old Testament believers in Israel, they looked forward to the coming Messiah. We as Christians, the church, look back to his advent and his coming. And it all points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's continue in verse, uh, so typology. Typology is a big thing, a big theological word they study in universities where they look at the types of Christ in the Old Testament. Let's look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Here, Herod does the unthinkable. He has little innocent children killed, all because they got in the way of his agenda. Look, verse 16, that word tricked, it says Herod saw that he had been tricked. That the, the, the Greek word for trick there is empizo. It means to mock. It means to embarrass. It means to humiliate. It means to trick like a child. Now, y'all, y'all remember what we talked about Herod last week. Herod was a very prideful, dark man. This would have infuriated him. Just as the verse says, he became very, very enraged. But Herod responds in a fit of rage. He has no regard for human life, and he orders the execution of all the infant boys. Now, I find this interesting because what we have here is we have secular history intersecting with biblical history. Okay? 
The Bible doesn't reveal what I'm fixing to tell you, but secular history does. There's been volumes of books, by the way, written on Herod. I mean, we can, we can put together almost his whole entire life from the Hasmonean dynasty all the way up to his death. But what you need to understand is Herod was a cold-blooded murderer. In the year 35 BC, he had his, bro- his, his, his brother-in-law, the high priest Aristobulus, drowned because Herod suspected him of disloyalty. I even read where there was a wedding ceremony that, that the high priest had performed. And Herod, in the, weird, in, the, in the wedding ceremony, he pretended to weep and cry to show his emotion in front of the high priest, only to trick him later that day and kill him. In 29 BC, believing his wife Miriam had betrayed him, he had his own wife killed. Afterwards, fearing they were plotting to overthrow him, he ordered the execution of three of his sons. His mental state deteriorated in his rage and anger, and it culminates uh, with the Bethlehem massacre. No regard for human life. Didn't care. Hated people. Hated life. Hated the truth of Scripture. That was Herod's state of mind. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Family, human life is sacred and precious and to be held in the highest value in our world. From inception to last breath, it is sacred and precious in God's sights. As Christians, we stand against human trafficking. We stand against abortion. We are called to defend those who have no voice. From the womb to final breath, all human beings are created in the image of God and have great value and worth, regardless of the situation they may find themselves in life. And to take life at any stage between inception and final breath is a violation of God's sixth commandment. You shall not kill. But Herod, he had no regard for the law of God. He had no regard. All he cared about was himself. Herod, and this isn't just David speaking from biblical history and biblical text, but from even the ancient uh, text of the people. Uh, he, put the, he put the fear of Herod in everywhere he went. Everywhere he was put in charge, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to Judea to every, wherever he was put, he put great fear in the people because he murdered a lot of people in his life and, in, and, and under his rule. But here, he's tricked by the Magi. You know, the Magi had the Holy Spirit. They had God leading them. And God's wisdom is greater than the world's wisdom. And in God's wisdom, he protects them and sends them back to the ancient prefects, to the disciples of Daniel there in Babylon to share the good news that Christ has been born. Let's continue. Verse 17. Verse 17. Here we go. Another, another Old Testament prophecy. Um, Matthew, remember, Matthew's writing to Jews. He's writing to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And he's convincing them that Jesus is the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. Verse 17. Then what has been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So God looked into the future. 
He saw what was going to happen. He saw the darkness of this world. He saw the darkness of Herod, and he, and he said, this is what is going to take place. When Jer- if you go back to Jeremiah, where this, this, this verse is spoken, when Jeremiah originally spoke this prophecy, Jews were being gathered at Ramah, which is a city five miles north of Jerusalem. Why? To be deported to Babylon. And what happened as they were being deported? The mothers wept bitterly as their children were herded off like cattle and taken into captivity. This was a real event in Jeremiah's day when it was originally spoken. But again, it was a typology. It was a, something that happened in the Old Testament that's predicting an event that's going to take place in the future. But it was also a prophetic picture of the pain the mothers would experience in Bethlehem as Herod had their precious little babies slaughtered. You know, the first century um, Christians, Jews, that were reading this letter that Matthew was preaching to, writing to, you know, their, their blood would have boiled because they did not like Herod. Herod kept his thumb and kept his rule over them in a tyrannical fashion. But look at the first four words of verse 19. As, as, as Matthew's writing this gospel, look at the first four words. But when Herod died. As, those, as they read this scripture, it would have been like, wow, thank you, Lord. The tyrannical leader is gone, is what they would have thought. Thank you. I believe God punished Herod. Herod died a painful, a very painful and agonizing death. This is what Josephus said. Josephus, a historian, not a Christian historian, a Jewish historian, uh, gives us a description of Herod's death in his writings. He says this, I quote, Herod died of ulcerated entrails. He became infected with some kind of internal bacterial worm. His organs became putrefied and maggot-filled. The last week of his life, he experienced constant convulsions and a foul breath from the internal organ rotting and the the virus that was in him. He died a painful, agonizing death in Jericho. You know, I think God was giving him a taste. Me personally, I think God was giving him a taste of the torment of hell. But even in his severe agony, he did not relent. In his anger, Herod gave the orders that certain noble citizens of Judah be arrested and kept in prison, and that upon his death, they were to be executed. Herod knew this. He knew he was hated. Herod knew that there would be no tears shed at his death. So what he does is he has noble men there at Jericho arrested, and he gives the order, when I die, they die. And when they die, the people of Jericho will mourn. That's how evil he was. You know, Herod got what was coming to him. He, he, he inflicted great pain, great suffering, and a lot of death. And so he, you reap what you sow. He received it there at the end of his life. This is just, a, I'm just touching on this. You could go out and research this for yourself. It was a, a very, very painful, agonizing death that was known throughout the whole world. But verse 19, but when Herod died, that's all the scripture tells us, but there's a lot more there when you study history. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph 
in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. And what you need to understand is this, as Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus came back up, um, Herod had died. His son Archelaus had taken over the center portion of Jerusalem. Knowing uh, Archelaus was following in the steps of his, of his father and his terror, that is what forces Jesus to, and Joseph and Mary to go to the north. And where, did, where, where is he raised at? Not in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. But where? Nazareth. So look at verse 23. In verse 23, we're going to spend the most time here on our final verse this morning. Uh, verse 23. And he came and lived in his city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And this is where I get my teaching point of that third aspect of Jesus that he was rejected. He was rejected. And what's here, here's what's interesting as we look at verse 23. This prophecy in verse 23 is found nowhere in the Old Testament. It's not there. If you go back and do a search for he shall be called a Nazarene, you will not find that prophecy in the Old Testament. So the question comes to our mind, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? First off, you need to understand this, that all scripture is complete and sufficient. It contains everything we need to know. But we also need to understand God did speak through other prophets in the Old Testament and in the book of Acts, and their words are not recorded in Scripture. I'll give you some examples. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Samuel had what? A school for prophets. He had disciples that were prophets that were exercising the gift of prophecy. 2 Kings chapter 2. Godly prophets were there uh, with Elisha and Elijah at Bethel, Jericho, and Jordan. Over 100. Acts chapter 21, verse 9, into the New Testament. Philip, the scripture says, Philip the evangelist had four daughters who prophesied. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Acts chapter 13, verse 1, tells us that there were prophets in the early church, yet we have no record of their prophetic words that were spoken. So here's the deal when it comes to prophecy. Any prophetic word spoken, whether it be the prophets at Bethel, Jericho, Jordan, the book of Acts, or even today, it must be judged by the written word of God. And if it does not align with scripture, it goes flushed. It's that simple when it comes to prophecy. When it comes to people having a word from the Lord, it is to be judged by the written canon of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. But we do need to understand that, you know, the Holy Spirit has given people prophetic words to, to speak. So, where does this prophecy stand? Look at verse 23. Bring verse 23 back up. This, this is what I want you to see. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the, notice that word, prophets. It's plural. 
It's plural, okay? So even Matthew is saying here, this was not spoken by a, a prophet. He says it right there. It was spoken through the prophets. I believe what Matthew is getting here, getting to here, is this was the theme of all the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, verse 23 would have been perfectly understood by the first century Jews who received this letter and who wrote this gospel. It was a prophecy of Christ's rejection is what this was. When you understand the meaning of Nazareth and you understand the meaning of the Nazarene, that was not a complimentary term. Let me give you some verses, the theme of the prophets. Isaiah the prophet says this, he was despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So Isaiah points to this, this statement of Christ being rejected, being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised, not esteemed. This is a statement of rejection. King David said this in Psalm 22. He said, but I am, speaking prophetically, but I am a worm and, a, and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. So we have Isaiah, we have David, Zechariah. Zechariah says this, pointing to the future Messiah. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. So the theme of the entire Old Testament prophecies of the written prophets, and, and I believe even the guys who spoke prophetically in the early church and in the Old Testament, is this. Christ will be rejected. He will be forsaken. Not to mention, ready for this? Nazareth, the city of Nazareth, is never even mentioned in the Old Testament. How about that? Or in Josephus, Josephus doesn't mention it. The Talmud doesn't mention it. Nobody mentions Nazareth. Nathaniel said to Philip in John 1:46, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" That was because Nazareth was a place of the outcast. Nazareth was a place of the poor. Nazareth was a place for criminals. This was the thugs. This was the low life. This is people that were rejected in the first century world were sent to cities like Nazareth. And here you have Jesus of Nazareth. So, so, so this, this is a statement of humiliation. The Lord Jesus, what you need to understand today is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had the greatest experience in human rejection known to man. He experienced the ultimate rejection in every aspect of his ministry. They tried to murder him, they hated him, and eventually they will crucify him. That's why it says, he, he, he will be called a Nazarene. Please, family, in reference to our salvation, in reference to our theology, please see the big picture of this statement, the Nazarene. Here it is. Jesus was rejected so you could be accepted. How about that? He was rejected so that you could be accepted into the family of God. 
because of his grace, because of his love, because of his mercy. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I would not have to be alone. So that we, when you put your trust in Christ and you say, Lord, come into my life, please save me. I put my trust in you. I'm committing my life to following you. You are never alone. God is with you. The Lord Jesus Christ is with you because he was forsaken on this world. Jesus was crucified so that you and I could be saved. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus went to the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin and the slate be washed clean. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now some condemnation. Does it say that? No, it doesn't say that. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you have been completely forgiven from the smallest sin to the greatest sin. It's all sin, and it's under the blood of Jesus. It's, you are forgiven if you are in Christ, and the slate is completely wiped clean because Jesus was a Nazarene that, got, that was crucified. Jesus bore the wrath of God for sin so you and I could spend eternity in heaven and not hell because of his great love. You know, so that's Jesus. Now, not necessarily in our culture today. In some parts of the world, this is true. And, it, and I think it's becoming more and more uh, increasingly a truth in this world. But here's this. Some people in this world view Christians in this negative light, like a, like a Nazarene. You know, you know, we're the scums. You know, we're the fools. They, they, some people in the world say that you and I are a fool for not enjoying the sinful pleasures of this world. Some people say you and I are a fool for believing this ancient book. Some people say that you and I are a fool for trusting in a man who walked 2,000 years ago. You foolish people, why don't you enjoy life? Why don't you do your own thing? Why don't you live like you want to live? Why are you following that book? Written 2,000 years ago. Listen to what God says to that train of thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. For God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things which are strong. So they see us as fools. They see us as weak. But this passage here, this verse right here, God, he shames the wise of this world by making the gospel so simple that it causes them to stumble. Okay? The simplicity of the gospel, we need to keep that in mind as we study scripture. The simplicity of the gospel is that God loves man. Man's sin separates him from God. Jesus came and died on the cross. 
And what God commands us today, commands this world today to do, is to put their trust in Christ. Put their trust in Jesus and experience this amazing forgiveness of sin. Jesus of Nazareth. That name don't even ring a bell. How many worship songs do we have written out there that has Jesus of Nazareth? And the reason that there, there's not many, none that I can think of off the top of my head, is because that word Nazarene, Nazareth, was, was, a, a, was a term of slander. It was a term of scorn. He, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. My point in verse 23 is that all the prophets pointed to the Messiah that he would be rejected. In closing, my question for you this morning is, have you committed your life? Have you committed your life to following the Lord Jesus Christ? Please understand, Christianity is not something you stumble into, okay? It's something that you make a conscious decision to say, Lord Jesus, I'm placing my trust in you today, and I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. We don't trip into it. We're not raised in it because the Bible says you must be born again. It's a decision you make in your heart and your mind where you say, Jesus, you are now my Lord. I put my trust in you. Where will you be five seconds after death? Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. What our world needs to understand, and those listening, those here in person, what we need to understand is this. You have an unbreakable appointment with God. You have an unbreakable appointment with God. This entire world does. And what this world needs is an advocate. They need an advocate, someone who will represent them before a holy and righteous God. And according to Scripture, there's only one. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. And you ready for this? He's never lost a case in the courtroom of God. He has a 100% success rate. He's never lost a case. Every single soul that has invited him into their life and he is represented, he has a 100% success rate of standing before the throne of God and saying, Father, I paid the price for this person's sin. That is the gospel. Please make preparation for this very important day that is coming. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Let today be the day of salvation if you're here or if you're watching online. Put your trust in Christ today. This is not about religion. This is not about tradition. But it's about loving Christ and trusting him and surrendering your heart to him in obedience. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is salvation. The Nazarene went through hell on earth to bring us to the Father, to Christianity. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who is reconciling the world to himself through the death of Christ. Friends and family, trust Jesus, love Jesus, and obey Jesus because he is mighty to save. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the great I am. Put your hope in him. Put your trust in him and live your life for him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word that we've studied this morning. And Father, if, if, if there be any person listening, in person or online, that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, I pray the truth will come home this morning. That it's not about going to church. It's, it's not about tradition or, or anything, but it's about trusting in you, Lord Jesus, and living our lives for you in faith, in love, and obedience. God, thank you for this study in Matthew chapter 2. Please encourage your people, challenge your people, and give them a deep hunger for the study of the Bible. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. All God's people said, amen.